It's season nine and we're feeling fine because it is the holiday time. Welcome to the Silver Bells season. In this season, we will be exploring not only interviews with the past Silver Bells, but also talking about movies, about Christmas, and we will also be documenting our trip to Richmond to see the Silver Bells. So stick with us. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. In 1985, Tyler was meeting Justin at their favorite arcade, Longshot. Just as Justin was about to confess his love for Tyler, the world changed. Blending elements of 1980s pop culture and LGBTQIA fiction, we journey through this incredible experience that brings them closer together as they fight against a world trying to keep them apart. Listen to Longshot on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, continuing the New Year-themed or adjacent films. Uh, this is definitely adjacent, not uh, themed. It, it culminates in New Year's Eve. Um, but this is 1990s Dick Tracy. Now, full disclosure, this is one of my favorite movies. Um and it's just because the time it came out, the age I was, the interests that I had in the kind of things in the film, uh, they all kind of, it, it's like this movie was made for me. I loved um, prosthetic special effect makeup. I loved vehicles from like the 20s and 30s. I loved um, Madonna. I loved show tunes. So... Uh, all these things coalesce in this film and it, it's such a part of my cultural DNA of like what made me and the things that I like and then continued to like. I know it's not the greatest movie in the world. Um, and let's, 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 let's get to it. Let's break it out and, and talk. Let me bring uh, Matt and Ryan into the discussion. Hey, Ryan. Hey, hey, hey. It's almost the new year. It is just a few more days and we'll all be in 2024. Which when you look at it, remember back before the 2000s when any number like that just looked like really crazy science fiction? Yeah. Yeah. And now you're like, oh, it's 2024. Yeah, there, there's science fiction, science fiction television shows and movies that are set prior to 2023 you know what i mean there is like a moment sometimes when i'm signing a document because we don't do that very often anymore like a check or something where i'm like oh it's 2023 anyway this movie was built in 19 built <laughs> this this movie was put together in 1990 just 90 1990 yeah and uh it was uh he had wanted to play the part since 1975 yeah, uh, and looks uh, like it. Yeah, and then um, you know, rights things happened. It, it was put into production with a whole bunch of different directors. Uh, I think John Land was it John Landis and uh, Walter Hill. Uh, Steven Spielberg was attached at one time. Like all of these people were attached to this, and eventually it was going to be somebody else. And then Warren Beatty just you know was going to do it on his own, and finally got to do it. And they went into production and. What February '89, I think. Mm -hmm. So it was before Batman had come out, right? Right. Um, so it's interesting. I saw this movie at the theater. I think every kid at my age, of the people that were like me, as you says, it builds you, was expecting Batman, right? Mm -hmm. 
but it's two totally different things. You get Warren Beatty later in his career, and you got Tim Burton making his third film. There's a young man energy about Batman that there isn't really about Dick Tracy. It's for the older folk. It's also, I mean, although this Dick Tracy is packed full of stars, the star wattage of Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton and Kim Basinger is just through the roof. And, you know, hysterical. The Joker is funny. He does funny, crazy shit. And when you when you have the people the the bad guys in a film like Dick Tracy, you want them to be over the top. Now, I evidently they you know I didn't read the comic strip mm-hmm. all that much. Um, I think I remember like Beetle Bailey like in the paper I read that sometimes. But um, you know each of the people were you know flat top was flat top in the actual comic strip, and it's like this, it's their souls being projected onto the way that they look. <clears throat> But there's such a realism in the acting, except for Al Pacino. Everybody's on this like really low energy level, and you're surrounded by these beautiful photos. Uh, you know, makes you sometimes think about Batman. Made, made me think about Sin City. Do you remember that film? Mm-hmm. Um, which came out later, and then Warren Beatty said, "Oh, I could, you know, I, I think I have an idea for a for a sequel." 2005, you know, and uh, I don't know. I just don't think it really hit the right crowd i think it was popular with older older people but it was also popular with you you were younger i was and and i i don't know i i then bought the celebrated cases of dick tracy it's a book with you know all these characters in his rogues gallery you know flat top is a huge story arc you know uh that ran for you know best part of a year so it's you know sometimes 20 30 pages to get through a story but you're reading the actual stories of these villains and then realize, oh, wait a second, Big Boy Patri- uh, Caprice is not a major villain of his. So uh, it's a choice to make him well, the number one. Yeah. And then all these other villains that are so much more badass are like his henchmen. So it's, it, yeah. Then when I watched the movie after reading all of those villains' backstories, I was like super into the film even more, although I was like, oh, but that kind of sucks. It would have been cool to see Flattop do more shit, you know? I think it comes down to Jim Cass and uh, Epps Jr., who did the um, the screenplay. They wrote Top Gun and Turner and Hooch. Uh, evidently, one of them did go back and read every single comic strip that there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the guy that was doing the strip at the time, because the original creator had died and had been doing it for Chester years... Gould. Chester Gould, the original, but this was the guy that had taken over, mm-hmm. uh, was brought in later, and and Warren Beatty and him put in some added dialogue, and then they took it to the Writers Guild to try to get you know credit for it, and they weren't given credit for it. It still went to uh, Jim Cash and Epps Jr. Um, so I think it also has to do with the with the script. I mean, like you're saying, they they've chosen to take this not even that great of a villain in the actual you know, source material mm-hmm. and make him into something he's not. And then you get a performance that's in another movie, mm-hmm. but yeah. he got nominated for a best supporting actor Oscar, which is wild, which is insane to me. I guess he finally got to like, you know, be bugs bunny, like live action. You know what yeah. I mean? But like, and, but then you get Warren Beatty and Madonna and Glenn Headley all doing this real kind of thing. You want kind of almost like a, Hey, 
you know, like uh, this energy that you just it just doesn't it just doesn't have when you're in the scenes with people. It's very mannered. Yeah, it's 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 an, it's interesting choice. But also, Warren Beatty is making a comment on his life and where he is at that moment in his life when he's making this film. He's at the end of his career. Uh, that's what I mean. Estelle Parsons is brought in from Bonnie and Clyde, um, and the other guy I can't think of his name now, Michael something, um, was brought in and. You know, looking at his whole career, he was known as this ladies' man and this basic misogynist. Sean Young said that she wasn't cast because she didn't take his advances, his sexual advances. And so it went to Glenn Headley. And in my mind, I'm like, would well, Glenn Headley sleep with him? Um, but he's also wrestling with the fact that should he settle down, should he have a kid? So I respect that aspect of it. I respect this movie. I think it's almost unrateable, in my opinion. Because there's so many good things. Who's the guy who played his brother in The Godfather? Who put, not Warren Beatty's, but uh, Pacino's. Oh, yeah. I can't remember his name. He was in For the Boys. Um, yeah. And he's the one who Big Boy offs. And it's funny that it's the two of them, like, battling out in that scene. Yeah. And you, I mean, you get, what? Uh, James Caan. That's oh, that, James Conn. Oh, I thought you were talking about his other brother. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Um, uh, you get the cinematographer who had done Apocalypse Now uh, and like two other amazing things. I can't think of them right now. And then uh, you get the editor of Apocalypse Now and The Godfather Part Two coming in and doing this. So the technical aspect of what they were doing is amazing. But then like with Danny Elfman's score, the, you know, Matt was talking about <laughs> how it kind of stops when the Sondheim music comes in. Why don't you talk about that? Well, I, once again, I talked to Stephen about the music because it felt, it felt almost like it was written by a New York Broadway writer for a Hollywood film. And I believe Stephen Sondheim is a Broadway writer. <laughs> and so I, it felt at times like it was hunch. in, it felt at times, and what do I know? I'm still renting. It felt like Stephen Sondheim's songs kind of stopped everything because most of them, except for uh, ba -da -ba 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 -ba, uh, back in business, back in business, uh, the rest of them were like Madonna ballads because she really isn't uh, like a, a, a voice; she's more of a personality. Um, and it just didn't feel. I, it was, I just kept scratching my head, like, is this the right fit? Is this why I feel like this should? Should this be in here? Should it be sung by someone else? Do we need a Brad Pitt to be playing? You know, uh, Fight Club has much more energy in it than this adventurous uh, detective story. Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel like, because Danny Elfman had done the score, when it went into Sondheim, you wanted Danny Elfman to write those songs? Well, there's a sonic discordance in this film because it's balanced with Danny Elfman saying, I just did Batman. I got to do something that's totally different. What? Here's what I got. And it kind of sounds like I just did Batman. And there's a little Batman in this. Um, and then you have the Sondheim songs. This movie becomes a musical in the middle of it, like inexplicably. Um, and then there are additional, I looked up, additional songs done by various other artists, in the, like Willie Nelson and... That's not Sondheim. I thought it was. It's not. I thought he wrote a bunch of pastiche songs as well. He did not. The ones that he did are in the movie proper, not just background. So there's, you're hearing music of three or four different kind of... You know, when this is what I love about stuff. 
I'm I'm always in favor of a really really fucking great actor or actress, and I hate to see performers in film or on stage. I don't want to see technique. I usually hate anyone who's the Annie or the Oliver in the musical Oliver or Annie because I'm like, oh, she can sing good. Oh, she can act good. But you know, in the uh, All About Eve, is it All About Eve when Betty Davis is at the table at the piano mm-hmm. and the guy's playing Libra's Libra. Lieberstrom, yeah. Lieberstrom, and he's she's like, play it again, blah blah blah, and he's like, I've played it eighty six times, she's like, do it again, and she's like, and she sings along. That to me feels so real that somebody would be doing that. All of a sudden, when the camera goes to Mandy Patinkin, and he's like, with that beautiful voice, what can you? And I'm like, oh, we are. I mean, it's it's beautiful. He's a great performer. He was a great, I'm sure, uh, George in Sunday in the Park. Um, but it just feels like something's not coming from an authentic place. It's almost a little bit forced in there. And I wonder, in the room, was Madonna asking and saying things? No, Warren Beatty is known to be a... Control freak. Uh, yeah, control freak, perfectionist. And he would not let anyone have anything you know, to say, I wouldn't think. Well, whatever he did... It felt like there were many voices in in that portrait. Gotcha. Well, for whatever cho- whatever choices he made, didn't seem like it was through the same lens. Right. I mean, it did visually. Yeah. Well, there is a two and a half hour cut of this. That was their original cut, and we were supposed to get it on a, a DVD release, and they never did it. They could never come to a deal with Warren Beatty, Disney, and Warren Beatty, so it was never released. Ugh. And I wonder what it would be like because there are so many montages in this movie with music that goes through so many things that happen and you're like wait a second I want to see that stuff yeah you know what I mean so I, I oh my god someday someday can we get that my god what uh, there was talk at one point about taking this to Broadway really yeah wow and Warren Beatty said no yeah yeah well he know he does that thing every year right not every year. Not every year. But every year the rights are about to be let up. He goes on to Turner Classic Movies and is interviewed as Dick Tracy. Just so he can say he has created another sequel or he's using the property. Because if you let it lapse and you haven't used it for so long, then he he, he doesn't want to lose it. And if you haven't seen them, watch them. They're batshit crazy. They're insane. He owns the rights to Dick Tracy. Yeah, he yeah. got them. Yeah, he got them. How much did that cost? I don't know. Who do you who do you email? Uh, Chester Gould's estate, probably. That's the person that created the comic. Yeah. Was that the person who was the actual illustrator? Yeah. And wow. and creator. Yeah. Wow. It's so fascinating just to think. I mean, watching something like this come from. I mean, was Dick Tracy even like a something that they had to the the person who was designing Dick Tracy for the comic. Did he have to sell this for years until it was picked up? It was a huge oh, hit. I know it was a huge hit. No, I mean, I mean the, the the comic strip. Right. Was, yeah. I mean, getting it there. How does that work? Does it was this this illustrator of comics like always selling his stuff and saying, "Please, I think it's," and then it blew up. This came about in the middle of Chicago crime being horrific in the '30s or '40s, whatever it was. I may be telling this wrong. If I'm telling it wrong, feel free to comment, um, listeners. But I'm pretty sure that what he did was start to portray 
a, a G-man, a detective, you know, a guy who is out there fighting this crime. And it became so popular because it was like the only like comic that was doing something like that. Everything else was, you know, talking animals or, you know, ridiculous things. This was gritty and real. And felt like, oh God! So when it started, the was comics... it in those colors to begin with? No, 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 no. Oh no! It was just black, black and white. Yeah, of course. Um, but that's—I mean—they did use the seven panel colors that you can you can only use in comic strips. They didn't go beyond those colors. It was movie. very difficult. Yeah, very difficult to shoot. But you do know if you wear yellow, and you're trying to be a spy. Or detective, <laughs> you will be seen. Well, I think they can see him coming. You know, that's the thing. Here he comes, the guy in the yellow hat. Well, <clears throat> again, so when the strip starts, it's very gritty. It's very, it gets very popular. Um, it expands to other newspapers outside of Chicago. It gets syndicated, the whole nation. Uh, it, it, Chester Gould, as he's drawing this, is always commenting on what's going on in America at the time. And so when uh, the country goes to, into World War II, there's the Brow, who is one of the best villains ever in Dick Tracy, who's just wiped out in the first scene. And I'm sitting there watching it going, that's like, that's like one of the big bigs. And he's just like playing cards and now dead. Great. Um, he was a German uh, spy. So there's a lot of that. There's little things that appear in the corner of the things that say like buy war bonds and like... He was very much engaging and having a dialogue with the country. And so it was wildly popular into the 50s, 60s, 70s. It started to lag. Um, the stories got a little more ridiculous. Like, I think they were in space at one point and like all kinds of crazy stuff. And it just, it fell out of, you know, the people who read it had grown up. Hey, this says originally Plain Clothes Tracy. Yeah. That was the original name? Yeah. They went from plain clothes to slick yellow? Well, plain clothes meaning he's a plain clothes detective, right? Yeah. He's not wearing a badge. A uniform, or a suit. right, yeah. But but he's okay. Yeah, so like a yeah, so a detective is a is a plain clothes. I don't think I don't think a, a yellow jacket's a plain anything. Well, I, that that was a revamp. Um Well, I also think that it's stylized for for a reason. Um you know, it's emulating also, the films of that time, um, in a lot of ways, um, but I just think there's a dis. I, I think there's a disconnect, in a lot of ways. Like you have this beautiful background, this beautiful, beautiful Danny Elfman music, and then you have Stephen Sondheim and the realistic performances, except for Al Pacino, and there's just like this weird thing that just doesn't quite click together. They're like side by side. And you're like, Oh wait, that puzzle piece actually, no, that's not that, that one. It looks like it fits. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Well, like for instance, Stephen Sondheim is, it probably isn't someone to just write a song and not have a voice either. Right. Perhaps. But like when, when Madonna's singing uh, sooner or later and they all show up to bust the club, is that the right song? Mm -hmm. And she kind of continues singing. Like, would there would there have been more hubbub and mayhem, or or did Stephen Sondheim say, you know, I really would like to figure oh, out? Oh no, that's a Warren Beatty decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. That's not a that's not the songwriter's decision. And Madonna went and coached personally with Sondheim for this. Sondheim had scored Reds for Warren Beatty before years before this, 
And so he knew he could go back to him and say, hey, I want this kind of... Thing. Yeah, that was, I would think it would be more a collaborative process, even with Madonna. Uh, but Warren Beatty's the final say. And Beatty had seen Follies and knew that Sondheim could do pastiche of different time periods like in Follies. Perfect, they, they, you know, it would be a perfect fit for the film. I wonder if Sondheim, like, if he would have done <clears throat> the music. Yeah, I mean, it, do you know what I mean? How different that would have been but as the, well. The thing is, with that, I mean, now I feel like Sondheim, everybody knows who Sondheim is because he's had, you know, some films made of his... No, mm-hmm. no, not everybody knows. Well, I, but it, again, the tone of all this stuff, it's almost like there's just a little too much from all departments. Like... Sooner or later would have been a great song, a great standalone. I think these other songs were used montage, you know, wise because there was many more scenes filmed. There was much more material. So then it becomes a musical with all these montages. It also felt like Madonna's music wanted to constantly really, really showcase nothing but this love story. But it's not a love story. Well, but that's what I felt like they wanted it to be in these songs. Yeah. Those songs were written for her and Warren. Right. And they were and they were in bed together. Right. He went and showed up at her tour. Right. Well, I mean, her tour was after this film because she's dancing with men in yellow hats and coats in Blonde Ambition. So it had already come out. You she know. released a... Uh... A CD or a CD, <laughs> a record, an album uh, from this called Breathless, right? I'm Breathless. I'm Breathless. It was I'm Breathless, yeah. And it's the least popular Madonna album of all time, and maybe one of my top five. I was gonna say it's. I think it's actually pretty good. I it's do great. too. Yeah, I do too. I think it's great. I just don't know if it quite lands. It yeah. doesn't mesh well. Um, um, but maybe the two and a half hour cut. Fixes all of those problems. I'd love to see it. Who was the beautiful costume designer? Melina Cananero. I mean, the costumes are so fun to look at. And the at. makeup. I mean, she also is... did Marie Antoinette and a whole bunch of other stuff. This is tied with uh, Black Panther. Black Panther tied it for the most uh, Academy win- uh, wins uh, for a superhero film. Hmm. Uh, Black Panther and Dick Tracy. They each won three. There's something kind of soothing, if that's the right word, when you get into the bed, the visual bed of the movie, because you know it's not going to change, but even when it does change, you still have the same color palette, but maybe a different... The beautiful matte paintings. I mean, it is... It's some good stuff. I mean, all of that is just amazing to look at. Oh, gosh. When they're down at the pier between the two boats, or the two ships, and the moon, and just all these really neat things. They're even in the, the... the like a uh, diner. It's just, it's just so gorgeous, you know. The really cherry red, and the yeah. cheese in red, and it's just fun. I I want to talk real quick about both Batman and Dick Tracy. Were I think Batman was prepared a little better, but this is how their their merchandising strategy was a success for one and a failure for the other. So Batman, well, they they emulated. Mm-hmm. what Batman did and they shouldn't have they should have done their own thing they should have emulated a little more and let me be specific the uh, the public demand for merchandise and things after Batman was through the roof they had a limited toy line of like five action figures and then people were like well what else and then people had a recent touch point memory for Batman because Batman the TV show with Adam West 
was in syndication and still being played well, all the put, time. They put Dick Tracy uh, on the old uh, TV show at yeah, the time. The, the cartoon that's very racist. Um, with Yeah, every... Dick Tracy doesn't do anything in the cartoon. These racist little stereotypical characters literally named like Joe Jitsu and like some uh, Hispanic it, slur. It, it, I wasn't, mean, wasn't, it wasn't the live action Dick Tracy that was put on... TV at the time? It there was were like live a... action films from like the 30s and, yeah, 40s, 30s and 40s. And they're terrible. Yeah. Um, it's like Dick Tracy meets Gruesome and it's the, like Boris One of, one of them uh, in 1945, one of the uh, the guy that played Dick Tracy in that is in this Dick Tracy in the background. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Yeah. But um, no, they were bad. And they tried to play those on TV and they brought that cartoon back, but it was all terrible. So Batman, going back to Batman... People like I get again could go. Oh, I know kind of a little bit of Batman. There's the Riddler and there's the Penguin. So there comes out this DC uh, action figure line that has all the other Batman villains and like a Superman and a Flash Gordon and a Wonder Woman, and that gets snapped up. The T-shirts and stuff. There weren't. Yeah, there were Batman merch T-shirts, but then there became all these other things that came out of that were reference points and drawings from old comics. And so people were just going back to the source material and buy, buying Batman comics and just falling in love with Batman. So cut to a year later. I mean, Jack Nicholson, half of his deal was like on the merchandise and he made a fortune. Um, Dick Tracy says, yeah, we want to do that too. We're going to get action figures. We're going to have all the characters. Then we're going to make it really hard to find one of them. And that's like a gimmick which is the blank. They made like a limited amount of them. These action figures, I have almost all of them. They're grotesque. Everyone has bow legs. They look, I think they're made by the same people that did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ugly figures as well. Um, the merchandise was just not good. There, there were t-shirts and stuff, but they were all images kind of done in art deco print style from the film. I had almost all of those as well. They were garish. And, and there was the, the opening night ticket shirt that they made millions of dollars off of as well because it was a ticket to get in. That's to right. Night. I had one. Yeah, yeah. It was a ticketed shirt. Yep, it was a ticketed shirt. And yeah. you bought it, so that was your ticket. Yeah, yeah. And they made money off that. But I think I think, I think think what you're missing here, I think, I think you're right, but at the same time, Batman never went away. Right. Batman was always in the cultural zeitgeist. Somehow. The choice of, of doing Dick Tracy I mean, in 1975 sure. is, is even on the end it's, of it it's being... It's on the far end. But what I'm saying is, to finish my point, the and they did put out things like the Celebrated Cases of Dick Tracy book that I have. There were several books out. It wasn't enough. It was too far away. Kids weren't getting into it. The figures were ugly. And it was there was too much of a disconnect. It, it didn't, if they would have copied the strategies of Batman, yes, you say Batman was still in the culture. It was on syndicated television. Uh, sure, Batman was not as popular up until that film. I mean, it was popular. It was in the more 60s. popular than Dick Tracy. Sure, sure, I mean, sure. But I mean, everybody I knew knew. Na 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 na. Yeah, Batman. Holy shit, Batman! We would always always say holy shit. I mean, that was all in the jingle bells, Robin smells, Joker laid an egg, you know, whatever. uh, When I looked at the paper, (laughs) I knew what Dick Tracy looked like. That's all I knew about Dick Tracy. Is what I'm saying. There, it was much more still there. Uh, People were still reading the comics. They were still selling comics Mm -hmm. uh, with Batman. Like, so it was still, it was still there. It was still there. It was not. This rekindled it. It was kind of dwindling in popularity a little bit, especially the comics. 
um, it reinvigorated the comic brands, but um, for sure. But the you know, Dick Tracy had been gone too long, and then everyone was like, well, "Check out this cool thing, Dick Tracy!" And people were like, "Who's that? What's that?" I just don't think those those time period. Okay, so all of these time period uh, old radio shows or whatever, uh, Dick Tracy were being made at the same time. The Shadow, do you remember The yeah. Shadow? The Rocketeer. None of them did well. None of them took None well. None of them took off. Uh, Phantom. Yeah, t- uh, didn't go. Didn't go. And it's because it was left the cultural zeitgeist. And the, and the studios <laughs> didn't understand that. And those scripts have probably been circulating for 20, 30 years. Yeah, and, and, it, and you got these old people who are running the studios going, oh, yeah, I remember, <laughs> I remember that. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But... Uh, to, to think that we've got Madonna, Batman had Prince, we're solid, it's just such a Warren Beatty mentality as well because, I mean, she was like the Taylor Swift at the time. She was that kind of, I mean, maybe not as, but um, she was big, one of the most famous women in America for sure. This was before she even dropped off into that much controversy, so she was still pretty popular. Um, but she was singing 20s and 30s songs and no one gave a shit. I mean, Prince singing bat dance or whatever well i was just telling him i mean the prince soundtrack isn't really used that often in the movie just a couple itself. times just a couple um, times and that's because party Tim man Burton did not want that party man's in there um trust is in there uh scandalous is in there there's 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 a few times yeah but tim burton did not want them in there at all he didn't want prince to do <laughs> he anything wanted danny to have his stamp yeah. absolutely but i think it's wise that they put prince in there because it made everything he touched got cooler. You know what I mean? And you, as a young person watching, were like, oh my god, it's Prince. This is so much fun. Well, and you're talking about, okay, Prince is a legendary musician. Like, I will literally say he's a legendary musician. Yeah. Madonna is not a legendary musician. She's Madonna, a legendary performer. Performer. Yeah. Marketer. You know what I mean? So that's, and then you bring in Sondheim, who's a, a legendary musician. Broadway. <laughs> You know, uh, writer, you know, musician. I mean, a writer of music. Um, to do stuff for Madonna. That's the disconnect there as well. Maybe you let Madonna do the music because it's coming from her. I don't know. That would have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a lot worse. Um, it would be a song called I Love Dick. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, I... I... I will say that this movie cast uh, a stain upon my life that I will never remove happily. I, the, even looking around the house and things, stylistically, some of the things I do are because of the visual design in this film. I painted my closet door to look like Dick Tracy's closet door in the film. That's that's really bonkers. But I noticed one day it was the same pattern uh, door, so I just painted it. Um, and there's something about that Art Deco style of, of that era that's so, the, the lines are so clean and pristine and the clothing is so interesting. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely left its uh, mark on my soul. I can appreciate now that it's it's got some problems, but but visually... Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's a fun watch. I mean... I didn't like it in 1990 mm-hmm. uh, when I went to see it. I was really, I was really disappointed. But I, I was just really starting to get into like what film is outside of a pop culture or reference. You know what I mean? Where Batman and all that. I started to get into, you know, Reds mm-hmm. and Bonnie and Clyde. You know those kinds of things. And so like I was excited for it because Warren Beatty is a great filmmaker. He really is. He won Best Director for Reds. 
Uh, amazing actor at that. So I was excited for it on two levels and was let down on both. Do you know what I mean? But watching it this time, you know, it, it's good. I, I don't mind watching it. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, it, I don't laugh. Yeah, yeah. I don't laugh ever. I laugh at it when Al Pacino's doing his thing, who was nominated for the best. I just, I, I can't I asked, stop saying it. I asked Steven at one point, I said, are they all taking this way too serious? Like, I don't know. It just didn't look like there was any fun. Director sets the tone. I mean, the there tone. is fun, but it's, it's all very, um, I don't know, the balance between realism and the balance between sort of caricature stuff is just, I wonder how much that had to do with, I mean, look, they are wearing like primary color zoot suits. They have these wild prosthetics on. I think they thought that's enough. Let we me, shouldn't go over the we top. We shouldn't go over the top. We should all play this like it's all natural. And you it think was... Warren had everyone call him not Warren on the set? <laughs> and everyone called him Dick. <laughs> Even though in the movie they call him Tracy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, again, and, and looking at it from a point of view of Warren Beatty and where he is at his, in, his, in his career, wondering if he should... Two years later, he settles down with Annette Bening yeah. and is still with her. So, like, he was really going through that thought process, and he put that into the film. Um, and so I respect that. And so it's it's not... I, it's unrateable. I can't, I can't rate it. I like it, but it's, like, it's good, so good in one way and really not quite great in others do you know what i mean bug bailey is up in that attic of the uh club ritz i see a thermos i see a a, a lunch pail i see like fresh where is it coming from <laughs> the coffee's hot how <laughs> how i mean how good were thermoses back then and also this is your only coffee he's seemingly up in the attic for weeks like where is it coming from i just i noticed that today and was like hey wait a minute um there were uh, other small catches that I noticed. So I, I paid attention to all the signage in the city today for the first time. Very simple. Bank. Yeah. Hotel. Yeah. Um, when they're looking for, when they've broken into Tracy's apartment, they're looking for samples of his writing. And there's like checks, you know, cash checks or whatever. And it says something like, Home, Homeville, USA, is the city. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It's just so generic and, like, let's say nothing. And it was kind of fun to watch. There was a thing, though. There's a sign that says roller skating. And I thought, was that really big at that time period? I yeah. wonder. Oh, I yeah. Wonder. Roller skating? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. Um, there, was, there was jobs where you had to roller skate as far as, like, uh, like in like factories and stuff, you would roller skate to get from one end to the other. I did not know that. Yeah, interesting. Roller skating waitresses. Yeah, roller skating waitresses. There was a, a hotel. So, right when they're trying to go over the bridge, but there's a ship coming through, so they can't. There's there was, uh, Hotel Grand, not the Grand Hotel, but Hotel Grand, and then on the other side of the water there was Center Hotel. And I was just like, how wonderfully vague those are. I, I wonder, if is that pulled directly from the comic strip? Not Homeville, USA, or anything like that. No, there's nothing that... Um, I mean, they're supposed to be in Chicago, I believe. Um, but at any rate, uh, I, I always have the same thought, and I had this, the thought when I first watched a film and I'm a kid, 
why are you showing that dummy of Al Pacino's body flying down that shaft at that gear place? Like, it's all, it looks ridiculously fake. It's like a dummy. Like, why did you include that shot? I mean, just to give us the info. Could it have been quicker so we don't... <laughs> it's awful. It's like sophomoric. Do better, Warren Beatty. Come on. Um, I guess the roller skate was invented back in the uh, mid-1700s. Oh, well. Okay. Uh, they weren't very good. Uh, there was a scene in uh, opera in 1840s that had roller skates to simulate ice skating. I didn't know they'd been around so long. Um, I'm trying to find the 20s and yeah they kind of skip over it in the history it just jumps to roller skating popularity began during the late 1950s and 1960s that's where i have it in my head yeah that's where i would have put it as well but i remember seeing like i guess would have been like late 40s maybe i don't know of, of women on roller skates in like factories going from one end to another i don't know maybe maybe it's from a movie interesting you know, <laughs> you know i don't know um and yeah, yeah, I guess there's nothing else I can eke out to say about this. One of my favorite films. I, It's it's New Year's Eve adjacent as we end the uh, big battle at the Club Ritz on New Year's Eve, which looks like, man, it's a great place, great fun place to be until that shootout. So much like the Poseidon Adventure, not the best party to attend. <laughs> I got to, uh, by the 1930s, the golden age of roller skating had dawned. Yeah. So it was a, definitely a thing. But I guess the the huge popularity was in the 50s and 60s. And then apexing in the 80s, I would think. I mean, it was so those rinks were everywhere. I think the 50s and 60s was the, the biggest. Because really? it started to go downhill even when I was growing up. I mean, we, there were roller skating rinks, but they, you know, I remember by the 90s, like most of them had closed. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. Well, well you got the inline skates and all that coming up, you know. Um, this has been Dick Tracy. That's right, it has. And the next two days, Matthew and I will be in Richmond. So, heading on down to Richmond. We don't know what we'll be doing uh, as far as podcast world, but we'll try to do our best and figure that out. And You guys should record on the way down. I, I think I will a little bit. Yeah. Matt will have to. Let well, the I don't bark. know because Matt's in the back. It's going to be tricky. Well, maybe I'll just, I don't know. Maybe you're going to, are you going to stop or are you going to drive all the way through? We'll probably drive all the way through. Oh, okay. Well, then there you go. Never mind. Maybe when you get there. Oh, nice shirt, by the way. Thanks. It's Michael Kors. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about us, please visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an E-R. Please follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon under Connor and Smith. Again, Connor and Smith with an ER. Please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. It helps us out so much. Share it where you share things. Post it where you post things. We are so appreciative to all of you for following us on this journey. And happy holidays to you all.